Welcome to the Audit 15 Fun Podcast. My goal with this podcast is to bring relevant internal audit topics to the table at least every 15 days. Today, we're going to be talking about objective-centric risk and certainty management. And to talk about that topic, I have Tim as my guest. Tim is the founder and managing director at Risk Oversight Solutions. He has been in the internal audit profession since 1981 for a variety of organizations during that time. His current focus is on promoting the business case for and helping organizations implement strong management-driven strategic, objective-centric risk and certainty management. Welcome, Tim, to the podcast. It's a pleasure to have you on. Well, thanks for having me, John. Absolutely. So uh, I I follow you on LinkedIn and you have a lot of thought-provoking posts. <laughs> uh, one of the things, one of the topics that I saw you talking about uh, recently here is uh, about SOX. And you worked in the in internal audit uh, pre-SOX. And one of the comments that you had about SOX is that it was a step backward to the profession. Can you elaborate on what you mean by that? Sure. The uh, Sarbanes-Oxley, it's, it's, I wasn't I was working with many internal audit departments at the time Sarbanes-Oxley was introduced. And uh, certainly over all of my years, uh, ensuring financial statements are reliable has always been an important objective uh, for virtually all of my clients that I've worked with. Uh, because many decisions are made and, and a lot of people rely on those financial statements. So I suppose my answer needs to go all the way back to when I was in external audit. Uh, I joined Cooperson Librand in, uh, let's see, it would have been uh, spring, summer of 1979. So at the time, Cooperson Librand was considered to have a pretty uh, modern external audit approach. So when I did all of my training, we were taught to flow chart the client's accounting processes. And we used a little IBM, uh, today's modern uh, internal auditors may never have seen an IBM, uh, flow chart template, but it was the little blue, uh, it was about this big and, uh, it used, we, you, you would use it to make decision diamonds and squares and to do your flow charting. So I was taught that we would evaluate, we would flow chart the process that a client used to account. So you had the disbursement cycle, revenue cycle, other cycles, uh, and you would try and identify key controls. And then of course the key controls would then drive the audit program in terms of testing those key controls. So that was 1979. So you were talking 42 years ago. Now, uh, after that, uh, one of the reasons I left external audit uh, is I disliked testing internal controls, uh, using my red pen and green pen and spreadsheets and adding machines and, and things like that. Uh, so I, I, I moved on and, uh, over the years, uh, in, in 1985 at, well, at 
Gulf Canada in their, I started in their internal audit department. Fortunately, we used a very uh, considerably advanced process uh, at Gulf Canada. So we were, I, I in today's vernacular, I, I call it process centric. It was uh, an offshoot of the Cooperson Librand approach that I was originally trained on, but it, it had to do with thinking of things as, as processes and flow charting and, and doing those kinds of things. And, but we were allowed to do far more than standard financial audits. So some of the audits I did was in a lubricant manufacturing plant where I was examining uh, the objective of ensuring that motor oil complied with the specifications. So I got into that and much broader focus. Uh, when Sarbanes, I launched my company in 1991. Um, it was originally called MCS Control Training and Design, and it became Card Decisions, which stood for Collaborative Assurance and Risk Design, but with a heavy emphasis on decisions. And that was when, uh, back in Gulf Canada, we had launched what was known at the time as Control and Risk Self-Assessment. Today, would probably call it Enterprise Risk Management because it involved going across the whole of the company and all of the departments, including accounting and asking them, what are your most important objectives? So of course, if you're a controllership department, one of your most important objectives is producing reliable financial statements that comply with gap. So when we launched it right from the get go at Gulf, I said, I think we need an approach that starts with the most important objectives. So that was 1985. So we would look at uh, ensuring the company uh, hit expanded proved and probable reserves by uh, 2 billion barrels. And we would look at the risks and the controls and, and that was how we did it. And of course, when we went in the accounting, we said, okay, what are the risks that we won't produce that could cause us to produce unreliable financial statements, be it fraudulent, accidental, negligent, what any of the many causes that can cause financial statements. So from, from the mid eighties on, I have always believed that financial statement assessment should be done on an objective basis. So you start with what I call the macro objective. And then you can drive it down to the line item. So I, two of my jobs were controllership positions at Gulf and Gulf was very progressive. Every line item on the balance sheet, there was somebody in controllership owned it. And it was your job to understand it, make sure it was right. And you would get quizzed on it at the monthly uh, meetings in terms of whether you truly understood what it was doing. So. The notion of objective centric has been something very strongly held belief for a long time. And then when Sarbanes-Oxley came along, and again, many of your listeners, this was Sarbanes-Oxley was 2002 falling, following what I call a perfect storm of bad financial reporting, mainly in the United States, but other places have had similar scandals and, and disasters in terms of seriously like i remember one i think it was it, it took the cake i think it was 
the cash balance was wrong by $6 billion. I mean, that's really bad auditing. But, but these things have happened. And uh, so I was had my own company by then, and we had uh, software I had built called CardMap. CardMap was designed to do objective-centric analysis on financial statements. So you would start with the macro-level objective of producing reliable financial statements. You'd identify the biggest risk statistically that cause financial statements to be wrong. And then you'd ask, what do we... What does this company do to manage those risks? And then you can drop it right down to line items. So if if deferred tax or the tax provision is historically one of the most statistically likely balances to be wrong, so we would do a line item analysis. So if our objective is to get the tax provision right, what are all of the risks that would cause the tax provision to be wrong? So... Sarbanes-Oxley came along in two, Sarbanes Act was 2002, but it was the job. And if you read the Sarbanes-Oxley Act, it doesn't tell the regulators in the United States how to bring the rules. It said they wanted an assessment by CEOs and CFOs. They were to assert whether the, the statements internal controls were effective or ineffective. But that came from the SEC. That didn't come from Congress. So when the SEC published their first exposure draft of what they wanted people to do, which was assert whether they had effective controls in accordance with what they called a suitable control framework, they said you could use the Canadian framework, the British or the American, but they really meant you had to use COSL. And I wrote, as soon as I saw the exposure draft of how they were going to implement SOX 404A and B, so unless you're a real student of SOX, A is the primary representation by the company, and B is the representation of the external auditor. Now, only historians like me that were heavily involved in exposure drafts and responding know that the original exposure draft called for management making, doing an assessment of the reliability uh, controls, and the external auditor would report on how well that process was done. That was the original exposure draft proposal from the SEC. Now, in the end, that isn't what the SEC went with. It said, we're going to get two separate representations. We're going to, management is going to assess and do their thing, and CEOs and CFOs will make their representation. Auditors will do one of their own, which in my mind, right from the get-go, that was a bad move on the right. part of the SEC. Uh, probably lobbyists, uh, the SEC is often populated with people on secondment from the big accounting firms. Um, there's all sorts of things go on. In any event, I disagreed with the way they decided, and I disagreed with using COSO because I said there is zero evidence that COSO has statistically predictive capability to predict whether if you do comply with COSO, 
it doesn't mean you will produce reliable financial statements because COSO is just not written in a way that that's conducive. So I, I wrote all kinds of arguments about why this was wrongheaded at the time. And, uh, it, it, in the end, it was, it is what it is. And the wording is the way the wording still stands largely today. Very little changes have been done. However, one of my roles over the years was contract director of research at the Institute of Management Accounts. In that role, we studied, we did a huge research project on the SOX 404 representations in the period between 204 and 206. Mm -hmm. Now, here's what that study showed. One in eight, one in eight opinions from CEOs, CFOs, and external auditors proved later to be materially wrong as to whether the company had an effective control framework in accordance with COSO. Why? Because they had to restate their financial statements to correct material errors after they published it. Now, to the best of my knowledge, there has never been a research study on why people issue wrong Sarbanes-Oxley 404 opinions, and they do it regularly still to this day. So nobody seems to care about the quality of the methods used to make these <laughs> incredibly expensive representations. Yep. So we published our findings at the IMA. We went, we went to Washington, the CEO of the Institute of Management Accountants and the vice president of research, who's now the CEO of the Institute of Management Accountants and myself, we went and tried to convince the SEC and the PCLB to call for objective centric risk assessment where you actually identified the statistically predictable reasons why financial statements and individual line items regularly prove to be wrong after traditional approach to SOX 404 assessments. Now, remember, this spawned an industry that generated billions of dollars of revenue. And Auditing Standard 5, which is what the SEC launched with, the Public Company Accounting Oversight Board it actually produced Auditing Standard 5. It was a disaster. It, it, was, it, it dated back probably 30 years in terms of external and internal audit strategies. It was costing, people were flow charting minutia and the external audit firms were charging hundreds of thousands of dollars to flow chart and test controls that had never really been important to much of anything. So it, it was, a, it was a fiasco, uh, well, unless you're an external audit partner, because there was a lot of money made and Ironically, in the end, my software company got bought by another company that offered traditional software. So I actually benefited as well from these incredibly bad rules. So while I was at the IMA, we tried to convince that, that it would be far better approach to SOX if, if we looked at and identified, just start with the statistically top 10 reasons why companies publish wrong financial statements and look at the controls to those. 
Right, right. Well, that presumes that the SEC knows what those top 10 things and the external auditors and the internal auditors know what those top 10 things are. Not available. Nobody's ever taken the time to study what those things are. So it, it, it's a serious problem. Um, auditing standard five was eventually replaced with auditing standard two, which is marginally better, but still really bad. Um, there is no theoretical technical reason why objectives related to reliable financial statements and notes or any line item on the, those can't be done using the same enterprise risk approach that COSO 2017 calls for. You start with the objective, you identify, and you try and get the statistically most likely risks with the biggest consequences. You then identify the risk treatments you use to manage each of those risks. And then you decide, are you okay with the chance you're still going to be wrong? But you also rigorously monitor performance. So when I go in to work with a client on SOX 404, I say, show me 10 years of adjustments your external auditor forced you to make after their audit. What line items did they find that your draft statements they believed were materially wrong? Give me 10 years of those adjustments and then let's talk about why those line items were wrong in the first place. Yeah, that's a good approach. So you, so, you yeah, go ahead. Yeah, so performance is key. So you, you get a flavor of where I'm coming from with this Sarbanes-Oxley. There are Sarbanes-Oxley methods that would comply with the act as it was written that would do incredibly better job if the goal is better financial statements. They are still using what I call legacy methods that date back many decades to do those assessments. They're not doing what COSO says, which is rigorously tracking performance and figuring out what performance tells you your analysis of the controls was wrong. Mm. What was it that caused it? What risk did you miss? What, what did you do that caused you to believe that the treatments or the internal controls is old speak that SOX likes you to use. What are the internal controls and why didn't they work? So rigorous analysis, there's many, many ways that the whole process could be improved. But I also am incredibly worried that many, a growing number of internal audit departments are being forced to do these really poor legacy methods. And it's causing many good people to quit internal audit forever. Yeah, that is true. That is true. It's a, uh, you know, good, good points on the statistics and, or lack of the statistics, <laughs> uh, of how, uh, Sox has improved or not improved, uh, financial reporting, but so you're, you're, you're big on objective centric risk management. You know, that's kind of like your big, um, big topics of discussion, right? That comes up. So in, in maybe in simple terms for, for the listeners, can you elaborate on what it means? And then the second question there is what are some, maybe some examples, maybe some success stories that you can share of engages in which you use objective centric risk management that, you know, we worked out well. So, uh, 
the story goes all the way back to 1985 when we launched objective-centric control risk self-assessment. So to me, simple. Even when I was in internal audit, if I was going to go into an R&D facility or a lubricant plant or a refinery or a drill, a drilling operation, I'd say, what are the most important outcomes that you're here to achieve? We want to produce motor oil that meets specifications. We want to drill 10,000 foot well, well bores that hit the exact spot the geologists think there might be oil. So it doesn't matter what the objective is. It can be, we want to prevent unauthorized access to confidential data. We want to ensure we can continue to operate if there's a power outage. Whoever it is you're talking to, what are the things that are absolutely most important as outcomes for them to achieve? Not how, the, don't even ask how they do it. Yeah, just start with what are the key outcomes expected from the group or the department or the company? What's the purpose of the company? What, what are our top five strategic objectives? Market share, whatever, customer service, you name it. So objectives has always made total sense to me. It's how I did audits when I started doing audits in 1981. It always made incredible sense to me in 1985 when we launched control risk self-assessment, it was objective centric. As I began to help other companies all over the world implement control and risk self-assessment, it was always objective centric. We would start right at the very top. We'd go to the strategic plan and say, what are the top five things the executives say this company is going to achieve this year? or in the next five years. And then we'd say, okay, let's think about the risks that could cause you not to achieve that. So it, it's been, I suppose, just so fundamentally logical to me. So when I built my software, CardMap, which we started building in 1990, Six, we started building a software system. It was objective centric. So it allowed you to uh, populate at the corporate level, at the subsidiary level, at the department level objectives. And then everything flowed from those. What are the risks to the objectives? What are the ways we treat those risks? How's our performance on this objective? Are we okay with how we're doing on this in terms of managing those risks. So the, this card map was built on that philosophy. We had great success. I sold card map to people like Bell South, MBNA, uh, RBC Bank, the biggest bank in Canada, um, sold it all over the world. Telstra, the biggest company in Australia at the time bought it, uh, mobile oil used it around the world. It made sense to me and it made sense to them. So when I showed the software to the executive, they said, okay, this, this makes sense to us. It's going to analyze what it is we want to do, what could cause us not to achieve those things. And what are we doing to manage those things that could cause us not to achieve it? Yeah. And how are we doing on it? And are we feeling okay about the risks we continue to accept? Yes or no? Fundamentally straightforward concept. 
made sense to me. It's very close to what Norman Marx promotes in his approach to likelihood of success. How you choose to explain it to any given audience, I can make that more or less technical. If I'm talking to a chief risk officer, or I'm talking to a mathematical quantitative person, I can explain. We can bring in the most advanced quantitative approaches known to mankind to analyze risks and analyze performance on treatments. We can use all of those great mathematical tools if there's a willingness to do it. So that was the way we built the software. And uh, it, it, it is, I, since then, slowly, in 2017, COSO redid their original attempt at ERM, which in my mind inspired risk list ERM. So that was the 2004 shot. Coso took, you read the whole thing and you said, look, what we really want to do is build some graphs that have risks plotted on them in red, amber, and green. So Coso's first shot at it really caused a lot of negative effects. 2017, I was impressed under Paul Sobel's leadership. They made improvements. I still, it's not that I didn't have any concerns with it, but it was a quantum step forward. What's the title when you look at the cover? Integrating Strategy, ERM, and Performance. So here was the first authoritative body actually starting to buy what I had believed and had worked with with companies around the world since the mid-80s. So it, it, it was a positive step forward. In 2018, ISO 31,000 started to bring in more, not as much as I would have liked about the need to integrate ERM strategy and performance. Um, in 2020, the IIA published the three lines model and finally retired the incredibly dangerous three lines of defense, which is gone now. What they said is that internal auditors should be all about achieve, helping their company achieve objectives. So if you go to the main diagram, you will see that the IIA in that 2020 product. Now, my post tomorrow is gonna be, that's true, I was really excited about the progress in the three lines model. And it said internal auditors should be totally focused on helping their companies achieve objectives. However, I went on the II say, I can't find any evidence that they have produced anything to help internal auditors go from legacy process centric, control centric, risk centric, risk-based auditing. What does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean starting with objectives. I can tell you that. Right. <laughs> so the IIA said it should be all about achieving objectives in 2020, except they haven't followed through on that. So tomorrow's post, I'm going to be talking about that. I'm going to be talking about, yeah, they got the right idea in 2020. What happened? I haven't seen anything since that's going to teach hundreds of thousands of internal auditors how to move from legacy methods to strategy objective-centric risk assessment.
Yeah. So yeah, and, and that was that's a good point. I actually had a guest on uh, on the podcast and Butera, and she talked about one of the easiest ways to avoid pushback at the end of a project is to start the project by asking, "What's your objective for this area? What is your business objective?" Because then you you start with that versus like you mentioned risks and controls and processes, right? And so talking about a little, little bit about that relationship with audit customers, with audit clients, right? You had also another very thought-provoking post on the topic uh, that you mentioned that auditors have a critical parent-child approach with audit customers sometimes. So can you uh, explain a little bit what that you mean by that and how can uh, how can we avoid having that approach? Because, you know, your point is it's it's damaging to the, the relationship between auditors and customers. Okay, so this, again, this is a belief that goes way back to the first, first audits that I started to do in the early 80s. You're going into a place the people are usually quite, proud of, of what they're doing and, and how they're doing. It doesn't matter. I, I, one of my very first audits was in a nuclear fuel bundle plant that Westinghouse had. So their job was to make fuel rods for nuclear reactors. So these people were smart people. I mean, we're talking nuclear physicists and some very smart people, and they had been making nuclear fuel rods for a long time. So there I was, a fresh out of school accountant with another accountant, and we've been told to go in and audit their plant. And so, fair enough, I'm up to a challenge. So, again, well, what are the most important objectives here, and which one are we going to choose to do an audit on? And I decided that we needed to do the objective of ensuring that all nuclear radioactive materials are accounted for, which was a subset of nuclear radiation disaster prevention. Okay, so fair enough. Now, the, the first thing was shock that the internal audit department was going to go anywhere near something as important as that. Right. They thought we were going to do check whether the purchase orders were matched up to the receiving receipts. And so some of the norm, nor traditional things, or, well, we weren't going to do that. So I'm out there taking pictures of spent, you know, radioactive materials stored in 50 gallon barrels out in the back lot. And I'm asking them, where are you going to get rid of this stuff? And I, I'm wearing badges and I'm, I'm trying to analyze how they know all of the material radioactive materials that come in how do they account for where it's all gone because obviously if some of it they don't know well that's a problem right <laughs> so i'm asking them all of these questions and um long story short i'm explaining to you this notion of an auditor and i used in one of my posts about a month ago i said imagine if you're a parent you get a letter that says you're due up for an audit of your parenting skills. One month from now, we're coming in and we're going to I analyze your parenting skills and we're going to write up what we consider to be any material deficiencies or weaknesses in the way you're parenting your children. 
and there's going to be a risk assessment done and we're going to plot all of the biggest risks related to your parenting and we're going to put red ambers and greens on them how do you feel about this psychologically how would you feel right so so what i'm telling you is is in the field of and i golfed with in the summer i golf with a psychiatrist who practiced for 40 years and a psychologist who's one of the top cognitive behavior guys in the field in the winter, I golf with two psychologists. So I also have been studying for decades human interaction models. And one of them talks about the difference between whether you're using an adult to adult interaction mm -hmm. or your critical parent child and what's going to be the most effective interaction theory for any given situation. Sadly, internal audit has been since its inception built on the premise that an auditor will go in, will decide what to look at, and then will tell the people that own that business what the auditor thinks are the material weaknesses in whatever it is they're doing. And they'll write them up for it and they'll tell them what it is they ought to do to fix it. Now, I'm simplifying, of course. Right. Auditors, many good auditors sense that the interaction model is flawed badly. So they try their best to minimize the damage of trying to use what is in reality critical parent-child interaction with very smart adults that have a lot of pride in what they're doing and not a lot of knowledge about what they're doing. So I said, how can we elevate this internal audit activity from critical parent-child, which I believe a large percentage of it is. Some of it's done worse than others, but it's all based on the model that an auditor will go in, study something, and tell the person that owns the activity what the auditor thinks is wrong. So fair enough, that's, that's the way if you go and get your chartered in, you know, you get your CIA and that's how the profession has evolved. It is based on the critical parent child human interaction model. One of my very first goals was I don't want to do it that way. So I worked very hard to come up with methods. So what I do is yes, if you can't convince a company that management should be the primary risk assessor reporters, which is my preferred strong first line model. If it is going to be an auditor or a risk person that does the analysis, fine. Agree an objective with the client. Don't start until you've done that. Right. You can't make up the objective for them. It has to be their objective that they're trying to achieve. Then you agree, well, what are the things that could cause uncertainty about whether you're going to achieve that? Let's get those down and let's analyze them. We can be very mathematical about analyzing the probability of a category five hurricane. We can bring in mathematical models. We can use modeling. We can do all sorts of things. Then we're going to look at the way you treat those risks. And then we're going to paint a picture of what we call your residual risk status, which is you agreed this is your objective. We've agreed these are things that could cause a problem. And we've agreed what 
the likelihood and consequences are. We've agreed what it is you do right now, if anything, to manage those risks. And here's your picture of what's left over, the risk that you could, you may not achieve the objective because one or more risks aren't, aren't managed. So, and we want performance data. And we want something that very few auditors focus on. What's the impact if we don't achieve the objective? Right. Not the impact of a single risk. What's the impact on the company, executives, the share price of not achieving this objective? So it's the impact of not achieving the objective. Riskless people focus on the impact of a single risk. Yep. That's different than focusing on the impact of not achieving an objective in whole or in part. So that's the methodology. It's free on our website, on the resource page, large amounts of my methodology are free on our website. I want the world I've made financial security in this field, doing what I've been doing for 30 years. I'm happy to share a large piece of it for free. So. That's what we talk about with the critical parent child. We want to elevate the whole interaction to adult to adult. We want this to be a more productive. Think about this for a minute. It's a well-known statistic that audits often 50% of the hours are actually analyzing something and 50% are arguing, negotiating and editing a report. Right. How can that possibly be a good thing for society, shareholders, or stakeholders. Why are you arguing? Well, you told, you tell your kid, I want you to get in that bathroom and brush your teeth. I don't want to. I'm telling you, get in there. <laughs> well, that's critical parent child. Now, of course, sometimes with children, you have to use critical parent child. However, if I said that to my wife. And she knows I can't say that because she lectures me all the time on not flossing. So she said, you should be flossing more. I don't like it. Well, what's, what's the impact? Well, you're going to lose your teeth early. You're going to get gum disease. It's probably going to negatively affect your sex life. Okay. Now we're talking about objectives. So. When you elevate something to adult to adult, you leave it to the other adult to decide, are they okay? Now, here's the, the rule I have always used. Management at any level in the company, up to and including the CEO, can take any amount of risk they want. I don't care. Mm -hmm. As long as they are prepared to share that decision and the risks that come with it with the board. There you go. That's it. They can take all the risks they want. I'm not going to lecture them about flossing. I'm not going to lecture them about weak password control. They can take any and all risks they want up to and including betting the firm on a strategic play to enter a new market. As long as everybody, including the board, buys that it's the right thing to do. Intelligent risk-taking decisions is what we're looking for. Right. So, yeah. long story short, internal auditors should be desperately trying to get rid of critical parent-child interaction in the way they do their work. When I became a manager 
of a controllership unit and an audit team showed up to do my unit, I'll tell you, it really dawned on me, this is all wrong. <laughs> this just isn't the way it should happen. You saw it from the other side and very good points is not about risk avoidance and it's, well, what's the risk to the enterprise and they're okay accepting the risk as long as they're sharing that information, then it's okay. So very good points, Tim. I really appreciate you being on the podcast. For those who are interested in, well, learning more about uh, objective-centric risk management, what's the best way for them to contact you to learn about it? Well, there's two things, two or three things they can do is they can just simply contact me, uh, Tim Leach at riskoversightsolutions.com. They can go to our website, www.riskoversightsolutions.com. We have a resources page with hundreds of pages of free training aids, resources, uh, case studies of companies that have successfully done this route. I just talked to a CEO of a company I was did a four-year stint as their chief assurance officer. She says she's got a, a one of the companies she may be on the board of is thinking they want to go this route. So they can go and pick up. There's all that that case study is on that website. They can follow me on LinkedIn. Uh, they'll be able to see all my posts. And they can join the LinkedIn discussion group called Objective Centric Risk and Certainty Management that I manage. All of my posts are there. It's quick and easy. You can read two years of posts on why this is the right route to go, why it makes sense, how to do it, implementation strategies, what not to do, which companies can't do it. And there are companies that the culture just will not tolerate what we've been talking about. Yeah, there you go. Thank you so much, Tim. Appreciate your time on the podcast. Thanks, John.